Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome back to another episode. The last episode, in fact, unfortunately, of the Spooky Bunch podcast. But luckily, we will be returning next week with your regularly scheduled Birdie Bunch podcast. So have no fear. We ain't going nowhere. Now, before the month of October ends, just be reminded that for the month of October, you can use the code SPOOKY for 15% off of our merch store. That is SPOOKY, S-P-O-O-K-Y, for 15% off in all caps. So if you want to cop some of that Spooky Bunch merch before it leaves, only to return for another spooky season next year, make sure to go check out our website and go hit that up. Otherwise, and without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Spooky Bunch podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination with maybe just a little bit of campfire flair, some marshmallows, and some toasting sticks for this season. My name's Matt, and I'm joined by my two friends and co-hosts. I'm Brittany. And I'm CJ. And we're very excited to bring to you today some unfortunate nightmare fuel to push you through this last leg of the Halloween season. Dun, dun, dun. You heard it once. There's the third time. Now, you know what they say, Matt? Comedy comes in threes. I thought that was... (laughs) Unfortunately for us, this is the fourth and final episode of this. (laughs) No comedy this week, just terrorizing creatures. That's true. And I mean, if you're afraid of things, you might want to stay inside this Halloween because we are bringing a lot of really spooky creatures to your palate today. Now, before we get into this, because... Believe me, you're going to want to get prepared, get readied up. You're going to get strapped into the roller coaster before it shoots you into Bolivian. How are my good friends and co-hosts doing this week? I've been okay this week. Nothing too crazy is going on. I uh, I, I am, I don't know. I need rest. <laughs> I've been <laughs> moving and shaking a bit too much. <laughs> so I need some rest, but I'm doing okay. Too many Brittany, spooky, how are you? scary skeletons, it seems. What? Too many spooky, scary skeletons, it seems. So many skeletons, really. Honestly, <sighs> really and truly. Skeletons. They sell a ton, really. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Brittany, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing pretty good this week. I uh, just got, you know, coming back from visiting home and gearing up for Halloween and just kind of been hanging around, going to work. It's been pretty boring. Same old, same old. Well, I can't say boring is always the worst thing in the world, uh, trying to calm down a little bit myself, but I will say that I think for me personally, life is kind of kicked up in like a good way. Like I'm getting more busy, but the busyness is kind of my choice now. And we got some cool research stuff that I'm kind of filtering through. So I am very excited to be getting into that. It's going to be cool. I hope to have some stuff to report out because we got some interesting stuff going on, but I kind of want to avoid all that sciencey garbage. So let's get into some spooky creatures and start off with none other than the spooky creature feature. Mm-hmm. 
This creature, the last creature spooky feature we have this month of October, I might add, is a beast that knows no mercy. Australian CJ might actually be very well acquainted with it as it comes from the land down under. Just oh, like I've met it many times, mate. I've met it many times. Many times I've had. It's a bloody fright, mate. You it's don't even want to mess with this creature. Terrifying. And what's funny is that just about every other terrifying beast seems to come from that area, but that's something we'll probably talk about later. It may look cute and it may look cuddly, but it is a nothing more than a menace to society. And it terrorizes the visitors to the beautiful land of Australia. This beast looks like any average arboreal marsupial. That is, until it jumps out of the tree, lands on your face, and scratches you up and pretty much kills you, unless you're lucky. This creature is known as the drop bear. Now, there's a couple ways that you can protect yourself from a drop bear attack. A drop bear is a large marsupial that literally... Hangs out in the trees waiting for its next victim, only to fall out like a cannonball and absolutely cause destruction. But as I said, there's a couple of ways of avoiding drop bear attacks in case you're looking to hang out in the Australian bush and afraid of, you know, of dying. And what stories tell of protecting oneself include placing forks in your hair. Having Vegemite or toothpaste spread behind your ears or even in your armpits. Peeing on yourself and my personal favorite, only speaking English in an Australian accent. Essentially, as I'm sure you've probably realized by now, the drop bear is nothing more than an urban legend. However, it does bear a lot of characteristics that resemble the koala bear. In fact... It is a very big fanged koala bear. Koala bears are arboreal. They hang out in trees as well. And there's a couple theories as to how the story of the drop bear might have come to fruition, including the thought of, you know, there was one painting that was found one time that actually depicted an arboreal setting with a thylacoleo standing on a tree branch. Which could be potentially what, you know, early, early peoples discussed as a drop bear, so to speak, or a marsupial predator jumped out of the tree onto them, only for them to be never found again. But kind of the earliest records pop up in about the 1900s, and they're all revolve around being a hoax. So, you know, for the most part, the drop bear doesn't exist. However, that said, you still want to be careful out in the Australian bush because there's a lot of spooky, spooky creatures aside from the drop bear. Now, mate, I'll tell you a thing or two that I know about the bloody drop bear. They're nothing more than a myth, mate. We just use that drop bear to scare the Tories away. But we do love our koalas. They're soft, fuzzy creatures. Pretty stupid, though, but real bloody cute. I'd like you all to thank Australian CJ for giving their interpretation on the drop bear myth. There's nobody who would know better than them. That's what I do, mate. Provide excellent feedback. Absolutely. And one thing I'm excited for now is regular CJ to be able to come in and give us some nature in the news. So let's talk some current events. 
Regular CJ's gone, folks. It's still Aussie CJ here with a current event for you. <laughs> Had to stop by at least one time during the Spooky Bunch podcast. Bloody, bloody love my time here. Now, for my current event this week, it's featured in CNN, and it's titled World's Most Dangerous Bird Raised by Humans 18,000 Years Ago. The earliest bird reared by humans may have actually been a cassowary. Now, cassowary are dangerous, dangerous creatures, just like many others found in Australia. They can stand almost six feet tall. They are black and with these beautiful red and blue faces. They're territorial, aggressive, and they're often compared to dinosaurs in their looks. They are just one of the most surprising candidates for domestication. However, a new study of more than 1,000 fossilized eggshell fragments excavated from two rock shelters used by hunter-gatherers in New Guinea have suggested that early humans may have collected the eggs from the large flightless bird before they hatched, raised them to adulthood. New Guinea is a large island north of Australia. The eastern half of the island is Papua New Guinea, while the western half forms part of Indonesia. The researcher said that while the cassowary can be aggressive, for example, it killed a man in 2019 in Florida, it does imprint very, very easily, and it becomes attached to one of the first things that it sees after hatching. This means it's easy to maintain and raise up to adulthood. Today, the cassowary is New Guinea's largest vertebrate, and its feathers and bones are prized materials for making bodily adornments and ceremonial wear. The bird's meat is considered a delicacy in New Guinea. There are three species of cassowary, and the native parts of northern Queensland, Australia, New Guinea. Like I said, these fossilized eggshells, they're carbon dated to about 18 to 6,000 years ago. And humans are believed to have domesticated chickens no earlier than about 10,000 years ago. So it's absolutely possible that these birds were the first domesticated birds on the planet. Well, I will say it seems to be that there was a hostile takeover by Australian CJ. So maybe we'll see CJ Greco later on. Who knows? Bloody gotcha, mate. Here to uh, stay all day. There was This was a thing that I was not anticipating, but I'm pleasantly surprised. Nah, I'm going to leave now. <laughs> oh, okay. Bye, Australian CJ. I was just warming up to the idea. All right. Anyways. See ya. Catch you later. Bloody catch you next time. Oh, wow. Oh, dear. So my current event also just so happens to maybe kind of sometimes focus on birds. Uh, it's an event from the Smithsonian Magazine, and the article is titled Ivory-Billed Woodpecker and 22 Other Species Declared Extinct. Now, we have talked about the ivory-billed woodpecker before. It has been a topic of conversation. And I was very hopeful with all the rescue teams out there that the ivory-billed woodpecker could be still around in maybe the swamps of Arkansas or Cuba or anywhere. But according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that is no more. On September 29th, it, as well as 11 birds, eight mussels, freshwater mussels rather, two fish, one bat, and one plant were declared extinct. Now, the ivory-billed woodpecker was a very large, in fact, the largest North American woodpecker and was 
completely crippled by habitat destruction that came in and destroyed the swamps where it found home. In Louisiana and other areas, it was listed as endangered in 1967 after being last spotted in 1944 until in 2004, a kayaker said they saw one and prompted a massive hunt for it. Since then, nobody's really found anything conclusive, and that has led to classification of extinct, as well as a bunch of other species that highlight the fear that some scientists have, where as these species become extinct, they're removed from the endangered species list. Now, even if the ivory-billed woodpecker wasn't still around, since it was on that list, there were still protections in place for it, and in turn, the habitat that it called home. And some scientists fear that its removal from this list due to a declaration of extinction will actually cut off further funding towards these habitats that so many other species call home. This is something that we'll have to keep watching. But another thing, and a really, really frightening thing that comes up from this current event, is just how much staggering loss has come from Hawaii. So the one plant species on this list was from Hawaii, as well as actually most of the birds. And this is an issue that has been highlighted, and it is basically avian malaria. In fact, that's exactly what it is. The birds on the Hawaiian islands do not hold in their genetic population the resistance to avian malaria like a lot of other birds across the world. And because of that, malaria has reached the Hawaiian Islands from invasive species of mosquito, and that malaria has run rampant and is destroying bird populations there, as well as other reasons, you know, deforestation, you know, the standard habitat loss. But this is a really critical one that we're seeing pop up is that avian malaria. And this is a big reason as to why most of the birds that you see in this list, apart from uh, certain ones like the Bachman's warbler or the Guam's bridled white-eye bird, um, as well as the ivory-billed woodpecker. Aside from that, most of it is all Hawaii. And it's something that we really need to focus in on because this could, this is something that is and will continue without really extensive rectification. So I would like to hope that this serves as an example of what can happen if we don't put in the effort to save a lot of these birds. You know, it's really, really crazy how staggering of a number, of a proportion that birds make up of these recent extinction declarations. But it just highlights the work that needs to be done and the work that eventually will be done going forward. I just want to make a quick note real quick. Regular CJ here. Hi, I'm back. Um, I just want to make a quick note real quick. There are still so many people who are not dropping their belief of the ivory-billed woodpecker. Like, yeah. in the past week since this article has dropped, like, as a <clears throat> recording, of course, I've talked to many people who are like, no, nah, I'm still holding that hope. I'm still going to be one of the people who's, like, hoping to see it one day. And there's a lot of people who believe, you know, it can exist in some of the islands out in the Caribbean. Like, it might exist somewhere in the south of the United States. People are still holding out hope for the Africa woodpecker, which is very reminiscent of what we see in, like, Tasmania with the Tasmanian tiger. So I, I, I love the, the positivity, but 
I don't know if I'm uh, on the same train. I, I want to believe. I, I want to believe really bad. But it's hard for me to be positive, especially when we're seeing such a massive extinction, um, like you just mentioned with all those species, Matthew. All right. Our last news article is from The Guardian. And it says, Pandemic Forces BBC into New Approach for David Attenborough's The Mating Game. And so it says African bullfrogs covering up pools. And this is obviously said in my most David Attenborough's accent, but African bullfrogs converging on pools in South Africa and fighting like barroom brawlers. A school of ghostly looking manta rays assembling off the Australian coast. Vivid images of am amphibious snot otters working co-operatively in a cold North American river. And so those are just some of uh, David Attenborough's uh, scenes from their his new series, The Mating Game. And so um, the article kind of talks about that The Mating Game was filmed during a COVID crisis, like during COVID. And so they actually tried some new new things to be able to get it done um, because because with the pandemic their their film like their filmmakers couldn't fly to all of these different remote places and so they actually um, teamed up with local filmmakers from those areas to be able to get film footages and um, and to get some of what is going to be shown in their in the mating game and so uh, for example it talks about when they're trying to film the bullfrog scenes african bullfrogs come out of their mating their mating game at a very specific time after there's been a certain amount of rain to create pools of large enough for them to be able to collect them um and so you have all of these enormous frogs coming together and it only happens over a couple day period. And so they have to have, they had to have somebody there when those were gonna happen. And because flights weren't able to be booked, um, a South African filmmaker named Russell uh, McLaughlin, um, who actually lived close to one of those spots, he was one of the ones who um, went out there and got some of those filming. And the whole article kind of goes on to talk about how um, David Attenborough and his team uh, worked with just a bunch of different filmmakers from all over to kind of get all of their shots and different things like that. Um, and I just found it really cool. It's, very, it's, uh, it's a really cool way of being able to come together as a community and to get some of these really amazing um, material that really inspires so many of us and have inspired so many of us for years um, and to be able to keep going with that. So um, I think if there's a will, there's a way. That's kind of dope, actually. You are definitely right that where there's a will, there's a way. And I can only hope that the same will will be applied in many many other scenarios including you know potentially the uh decreased extinction rates of uh, other birds so hopefully 
But for now, we've talked some spooky creatures already with our spooky creature feature. We've talked some spooky current events. As I mentioned, there is extinction. That's very, very spooky. You'd think we'd be spooked out, but let's get into the main event because we're about to talk some more spooky creatures. Last year, we all got together and we talked about some spooky creatures, right? We did it on a multitude of occasions, right? Animals and folklore sometimes popped up. And we also talked about those creatures that might kind of knock your socks off a little bit, you know, make you cringe, you know, the things that you go out in the wild and you don't want to encounter. And what we noticed upon listening to that episode as we were, you know, going through it is that we missed a lot, a lot of things. And that's what today is set around, right? We need to warn you about all the spooky things that are out there because you may want to see them now in the spooky season. I understand Halloween and October are for haunted houses and Halloween and ghosts and spooks and crazy things and horror films and all that, but as we step into Thanksgiving and the likes, you know, nobody's going to be thankful for being spooked while sitting around with their family. So, to warn you what to avoid, we are going to talk spooky creatures too. The spookier of the creatures. So, each of us, just like last time, have brought two spooky creatures together. So, I figured since this is Brittany's first spooky creature episode. She could go first. Brittany, what's your first spooky creature? Right, so my first spooky creature is known by their scientific name is Vampyrotothus infernalis, which translates to the vampire squid from hell. So the vampire squid has a super a gelatinous body ranging from black to a reddish gray. And their eyes have a ranging color from light blue to a dark, like blood red color. And the difference between those eye colors are kind of just the lighting that the animals are in. But these little squids have arms with webbing in, in between each. And they live in an oxygen minimal layer of the ocean. So they don't need much oxygen to be able to survive and so in order to reduce how much energy they're spending because they don't have a lot of oxygen available to them and they don't use that much of it what they'll do is they kind of just drift in the ocean waiting to find food that might drift by and so they're not actively eating a fish or things like that they kind of collect uh, dead plankton and and other dead material and they kind of form it in uh into a ball with their tentacles and they um they they bring it to they have a little beak and they bring it to their beak and that's what they'll eat and they just kind of float and drift about the reason why they get their vampire squid from hell is literally just the way that they look they kind of almost look like i think the best way i can describe them is a squid umbrella because like other 
squid and an octopus and things like that. They kind of don't have all of those connections and those webbings, but the webbing that is in between each of its tentacles goes all the way down and it kind of just looks like it's a weird umbrella. They're really cute looking in my opinion, but you know, they're, I guess, from hell. So they're pretty spooky. Brittany, I just have to say this real quick. That was so spooky. That was so spooky. So spooky. I don't know if I can outspooky you. That was pretty spooky. I'm gonna try to outspooky you though. I so prepare to be you. spooked. Prepare to be spooked. I'm strapped in. Okay, buckle up. Matt, are you buckled? I clicked it so I don't get ticked it. Ticket ticketed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was, I'm real. I was, oh man, how funny would it be if I was doing a type of tick? Oh, that'd be funny. There is, there is also. So, my spooky, my first spooky, uh, spooky boy, my spooky aminol, spooky, spooky guy, uh, Halloween creature, animal time, is a monster who's really not a monster at all. This animal is one of the most feared creatures of the southwest united states it's often described as a frightful and repulsive creature especially in local folklore you know how much we love folklore here it's been accused of many things such as spitting venom leaping several feet into the air to attack stinging with its tongue and killing people with gusts of poisonous breath meanwhile these creatures are nothing to that effect. Though, they are some of the few venomous lizards. That's right, I am talking about the Gila Monster. So Gila Monsters are heavy-bodied lizards that are covered with bead-like scales. They're called osteoderms, which is that group of heavy-bodied lizards. And they're yellow and black or pink or orange. They have all types of colors all over their body. Like I said, they are a venomous type of lizard, and that venom is made by a row of glands in the lizard's lower jaw. When the lizard bites, small grooves in the teeth help the venom flow into its prey. The bite of a Gila monster is incredibly strong, and the lizard may not loosen its grip for several seconds. It may even chew so that the venom goes deeper into the wound. A Gila monster's bite can definitely be painful to humans, but it very rarely causes death. The biggest problem you might have if a Gila monster gets a hold of you is trying to get the lizard to release its grip. But you really shouldn't worry about the Gila monster, though, as they tend to avoid humans and larger wildlife. To avoid potential predators, they'll open up their mouth very, very wide, show off that pink-red inside of their mouth and their little teeth, and hiss. Gila monsters, like I said, they're not very, they're not very monstrous, though. They are being, you know, killed off at crazy rates because of this myth that people think that they are dangerous, right? Or at least more dangerous than they are. Much of their habitat has been destroyed and cleared for agriculture, canals, roads, highways. Domestic cats and dogs often kill the lizards. And some of them are even collected for the pet trade. In 1952, Gila monsters became the first venomous wildlife in North America to be given legal protection. So these species are definitely species that we want to keep around. They're really important for ecosystems. But they're also important for really hu just human beings in general. In humans, the Gila monster's bite can cause extreme pain. 
It can cause a burning sensation and discomfort that can last for hours. And scientists who were intrigued by its ability to cause such a pain began to study the Gila monster's saliva and the venom within. After, you know, years of study and, sci uh, you know, scientists looking into the venom of the Gila monster, they've found a compound in their venom that changes how cells metabolize sugar. The discovery of the hormone Extin-4 in Gila monster saliva has led to the development of a new drug called Exinatide, which has the ability to help those with type 2 diabetes. The drug is a synthetic version of the venom's hormone developed by scientists to mimic the effects of the Gila monster's venom, which boosts the ability to release its own insulin. Although venom components have had practical applications, the time between the discovery and the drug being approved can be over 20 years. So lots of people are investing a lot of time, money, and effort into looking for venomous species with something of value. And if you find something, it might take even more years, even more money to get something that is approved to be used as a drug on humans. So while this synthetic version of their venom was developed in 1992, it wasn't approved for use until 2005. And it was the first hormone-mimicking drug to be approved to treat type 2 diabetes, and it's still used today. So the Gila monster is really just coming through saving lives. So not too spooky at all. Brittany, did you know that about the Gila monster? I did not. I think that's actually really cool. I think that just research, well, like, I just find research on diabetes really cool in general. And the fact that it's coming from nature is even cooler. And i very impressed. And thank you for sharing because I had no idea. You Absolutely. were you, you shared the other one with the insulin. Uh, which animal was that? I do not remember. <laughs> insulin, cone snail. It was cone snails. Absolutely. Yeah, right. yes, the cone yes. snail. Yeah. Yes. And so you're just... You're bringing all of the insulin uh, fat yeah. animals well, with to your the, with diabetic snails, friend. With the cone snails, what they were doing is they were basically using insulin as a weapon, right? It is they the best weapon you can ever use. We've established this on our venomous animals episode. We did. Yes. Uh, was it venomous animals? What was it? Most no, extreme. Was most extreme. We're totally right. I was on our most extreme episode. But the Gila monster doesn't actually use it as a weapon as opposed to it really just amplifies the body's ability to use its own insulin, which is fascinating. So for people with type 2 diabetes, it's something that can be really effective. Because mm -hmm. type 2 uh, diabetes, their pancreas will still produce insulin, just not enough for the body to function in type 1. Your pancreas is useless. It doesn't produce any insulin. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for sharing that. I always appreciate it when you bring diabetic facts in. I mean, the the ability for nature to help people is something that I'm definitely really fascinated by. We did we've done a couple episodes on biomimicry and how animals and humans mimic each other sometimes, and I think it's really beautiful when we can pull from nature, especially during the spooky season. So we have talked some monsters, and we have talked vampires in the form of squid, and we're gonna unfortunately circle back to the vampire thing again but in the clade mammalia now i know what you're saying matt we all know the vampire bat come on now what are you doing here what this is this is i came here for good original content and you are coming at me with dracula which has been told only 27 bajillion times beforehand i know i get it which is why i'm not telling you 
about the vampire bat, of which there are three species. I am telling you about the vampire deer, of which there are two species, the musk deer and the water deer. Now, vampire deer, fanged deer, these are deer that have fangs, um, hence the name vampire deer. And if you look at their skull, it is actually incredible because these large, sharp canine teeth jut out past the lower jaw. It's not even fangs in the sense of, you know, you see teeth poking out of a gator's mouth or something. You see that they're there, they protrude, but it's not, you know, excessive. This looks like a deer wanted to cosplay as a saber-toothed tiger. And even though this kind of conjures up the image of predatory deer, of, you know, these little, these little wily little dudes jumping around the bush and sucking blood from those and using these fangs to carve up their prey, they're herbivores. These fangs are essentially playing the same role in these tusked deer as antlers. Males will use them to spar, vying for territories and access to the ladies. Now, one thing that's pretty interesting is that this still may conjure up like a, a fearful image, right? But these deer are kind of tiny. They're like two to three feet tall. They're not the elk, you know, the moose that we see that are these massive, massive herbivores. These dudes are tiny. They don't even stick out of the tall grass. And what's even funnier is that ancestrally, the deer that they evolved from actually both had fangs and antlers, whereas these guys have lost their antlers. Their default was a mix of the antlered deer and the fanged deer. And these guys lost their antlers, didn't change in size. They kind of stayed the same way. And the big deer that we see, the moose, the white tails, the like I said, the caribou and the elk, those grew antlers and lost their fangs. And so what you get is these little dudes that hang out in the bush near kind of wetlands kind of and also in forests and stuff who when they come out, you know, first thing you see is these massive fangs. You're like, oh, geez, I'm dead. And you're like, wait, no, this 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 dude's tiny. If he bites me, he's biting my toe. And I mean, I ain't afraid of a toe biter. Like, it's annoying, but I ain't afraid of a toe biter. Do you encourage a toe biter? I don't encourage a toe biter at all, first of all. Bring me your thoughts on a toe biter. Not impressed. But. No, Brittany, go ahead. Share your thoughts on a toe biter. I don't think you should. <laughs> <laughs> would it, if it's a deer, would it, would it be a hoof biter? No, mm, not necessarily. <laughs> Don't talk about hooves like that, Brittany. <laughs> Don't be showing your hooves for free. People might get the wrong impression about who your hooves are for. <laughs> <laughs> they may look like a terror, and they may look like a vampire, but those fangs ain't for sucking. They're just for trucking. So our next spooky creature is 
set up for Halloween 365 days of the year. And we're not talking about me. We're talking about a little crap um, that is found throughout Central America. Um, the Halloween crab. These little crabs are called Halloween crabs because they are a nice bright orange and black pattern. And they move in a super weird, unique way. Most crabs will use their hydrostatic skeleton, um, which allows them, which which relies heavily on water. But Halloween crabs are really cool in that they actually are found that they move both using water and gas. And so these cute little Halloween crabs, um, like I said, they have these orange and black um, coloration, but they also have a really cool purplish blue claw that becomes a little whiter um, when it comes closer to the tip. And so they've kind of got all of those spooky, scary uh, Halloween colors. They also have these orange spots behind their eye stalks. And as they get older, they kind of become lighter and more washed out. They're not going to be as bright and vibrant. But when they're younger, they're like these super bright, pretty colors. Another kind of spooky thing is that these Halloween crabs or Halloween moon crabs, they don't grow very big. And so they're only going to get to be about two to two and a half inches long with their legs being able to come out about four inches. These Halloween moon crabs can also come out of water for a very short period of time. Their gills have to stay moist, um, which is a spooky word in itself. Um, and as long as that those are moist, they can be out of water. But just like a lot of spooky creatures, these guys can be a little skittish. Um, they don't like to be, you know, messed with, which who can blame them? But yeah, that's a that's a Halloween crab. They're just always set up for spooky season, and I so highly relate to that. It's it's just beautiful, and they're they're really cute. You should go look them up. They're just like these beautiful little little crabs. Now, I definitely can one up the Halloween crab. I'm so sorry to tell you, Brittany. This next creature is going to be way spookier than a little gourd crustacean. I'm talking like Jason Voorhees Friday the 13th level spooky. Spooky. Yeah. Like extra spooky. Like spooky squared for those of us who are into math. Know the math lore. Spooky squared, even. Math is the spookiest thing of all. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's right, folks. You heard it here first. But this week we are talking about spooky animals, and I genuinely cannot think of a spookier creature than this guy right here. This animal gets its ghastly nickname because of the novel trait that, not unlike the villain of a slasher movie, when threatened, it will deliberately break its bones that protrude out of its skin like claws on their hands and feet. This gruesome method of defense is not totally unheard of in some relatives of this creature, but the horror frog takes it to a whole new level. The hind feet of horror frogs, also known as hairy frogs, 
contain claws that are made entirely of bone that are usually unseen beneath their skin. There's a muscle connected to each of their bony claws to contract, breaking it off and pushing the claw through the skin. Because they haven't been studied much when alive, it's uncertain whether the frog can deliberately retract its claws later, where they slide back in after use, but it's likely that the broken and damaged tissue from when the bones extrude from their body regenerates. In addition to this bizarre characteristic of bones extruding from their skin like wolverine almost, the horror frog's bizarre appearance, like I very briefly mentioned, is only amplified by the fact that it has hair, or actually hair-like strands of skin, on their body that the males produce around their legs and backs during the breeding season, possibly to help them absorb more oxygen, because many amphibians breathe through their skin. The species has small lungs, and the hair-like strands could potentially give him more capacity to copulate when this frog goes according. They're found in Western Africa, from Nigeria down to the DRC, and they live in and alongside fast rivers with lowland rainforests. Both the tadpoles and adults are carnivores, and they eat small invertebrates. They're currently listed as least concerned, which is pretty good for the spooky frog, because there's not a lot of great news for amphibians right now. So, similarity to a monster horror film pretty much ends here, because the hairy frog only reaches about four inches long. Only flies are likely to see this animal as terrifying. But... I definitely think this creature is more than spooky enough to join our spooky animals list here. Definitely a spooky creature that we want to protect, and a spooky creature to look at. So take a look at the horror frog. This thing is so horrible, just to give CJ credit where it's due, that it made its way onto last year's Spooky Bunch March. So it is a darn good thing that we are revisiting that. And unfortunately, it has to be one-upped just a little bit because, because this final creature, the one to round out the whole entire Spooky Bunch escapade, right? The last thing that we are bringing you that will knock your metaphorical socks off is a ghost. A little ghost. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. It's a ghost. Well, it doesn't sound like that. It's more like a screaming ghost. It's found worldwide, right? It's nocturnal, goes to nocturnal. Pale, sickly, white, hangs out oftentimes in abandoned and sometimes even used barns, especially way back when, in the day when barns and buildings and things were lit by nothing more than lamplight, by lamp that was in hand, because if you were to leave a lamp on in a barn, you know, fun fact, if you knock that over, it lights everything on fire. Uh, Chicago, you know the drill. This creature made its appearance known to those walking into the barn it occupied by jumping out of the shadows, its pale ghostly white figure, and letting out a piercing scream just like this one. This, my dear friends, my dear co-hosts, and my dear listeners, is the scream of the barn owl. Now, the barn owl may just be one of the big reasons that people thought their places were haunted. It's a really lanky, pale, and by all accounts, gorgeous bird. Nocturnal, you know, as most owls are. 
species name being Tito Alba, that's found just about everywhere in the world except for the poles and deserts. Everywhere else, fair game. They're silent, just like owls tend to be because of these structures on their feathers known as fringes. They have fringed primaries, which essentially decrease the friction of air going across their wings as they fly, which muffles the sound and allows them to fly not even virtually silently, like actually silently. I cannot tell you how many times I've been watching an owl. I look down for a second, I look up and it's gone and it is completely taken off. Like hearing those things is next to not possible. Like I said, by all accounts, they're beautiful birds, but that lanky, pale, white form coming out at you as you walk into your barn at night screaming bloody murder was enough to convince people that ghosts were real for a very, very long time. Not only did they have it a habit of resting in places such as barns, also in church belfries, which only added to the superstition. There's a lot of superstition around that, which we will touch upon in other animals and folklore episode, but Farmers and those who have them around should actually see them as good omens because barn owls prey upon species like rodents and stuff like that that most people don't want in their barns, in their farms. And so these nocturnal hunters, regardless of how scary they might be if you accidentally stumble upon one in your barn, are actually wonderful to have around. And especially in the Midwestern United States where their population has almost been virtually decimated, seeing one is not only a good omen, but a really lucky one as well. Now we've talked today about some very spooky creatures. And as I mentioned before, there's a lot of spooky creatures out there. So you best believe that we'll be revisiting this topic until we exhaust all our options, which just to warn you now, will never happen. But one thing that's important to point out is that no matter how spooky these creatures are, how matter how ugly they are, how many bones they pop out of their wrists, how many farmers they scare or how gelatinous their body is, all these creatures are a part of the ecosystem and of the beautiful biodiversity of life that we see today. And so just because we highlight them during the spooky season, doesn't mean that's the only time of their importance. Vampire squid and vampire deer don't just become important cogs in the machine when Dracula comes around, and barn owls didn't only become relevant when the mythological outlines of ghosts were presented. All of these creatures have existed in the natural world for longer than we can possibly comprehend as individuals, and are part of the really important cog, the machine rather, that keeps this world running. And so, my main point that I want to make, and this is what I wanted to rally behind, is that these creatures may not be beautiful. They may be scary, just like spiders or snakes or all those things that when they go bump in the night, we kind of freak out just a little bit. But they're all integral, they are all equally equally important and so conservation of these creatures of the barn owl 
of the vampire squid, of the Gila monster, and of assorted all these other creatures isn't only relevant now. We talk about it now because it's fun, but these creatures persist past Halloween. And just because we highlight them now doesn't mean that they don't deserve the love all year round. That was so bloody spooky. Great job, folks. I'm, I'm Australian CJ. Back to say happy bloody Halloween. We're back to the hostile takeover, folks. Now, did you know that Halloween not actually a huge deal here in Australia? We don't actually do that much for the spooky season. It's because your life is spooky down there. That's true. That's true. Up here in Sydney, we got bloody funnel webs. You know, you go up to Queensland, they got bloody cassowaries. So much scary stuff out here. Yeah, no, we have just kids in sheets. Out here, it's all sheets and giggles. Well, that seems like a good Halloween pun to wrap up on. And I know we all have Halloween plans that might include jack-o'-lanterns or parties, costumes, stuff like that. Brittany's got a dog that might get dressed up. So if people want to see how you're treating the spooky season, Brittany and CJ, where can people find you on social media? You can find me on the social meds on Instagram at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And we talked about costumes last week. I'm still very undecided. I doubt I have a costume. If I do, you'll see it on my Instagram. I don't know. We'll see what happens. I know you all got some costumes, though. Brittany, what's your costume? I know we've said it a couple of different times at this point, but share it on the, on the gram. Where can you be found? Well, I will be sharing it, hopefully, as long as I'm not poor and I can afford my costume. Um, but you can see, hopefully, that costume at the Brittany underscore bunch. That's T-H-E-B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B-U-N-C-H. And yeah, hopefully some spooky content will be headed your way. And you can find me on Instagram at Matt Valga. That is M-A-T-T-V is in... Vernacular, A-L-I-G-A, decided I'd switch it up a little bit because I took away that privilege last week. I apologize. Too little, too late. It'll be back again with the regular episodes of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> if you'd like to find all of us on the social media combined as one beautiful entity. You can find us on Instagram at the birdie bunch podcast, as well as our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. There's tons of resources out there. I'm sure by now you probably know the drill, but the big one I want to point you to is on the support the bunch page. We got a merch store where, like I said, the code is spooky S P O O K Y for 15% off until the end of this month. Or if you already are all merged out, you can also consider being a patron for our Patreon. Our Patreon is open to everybody. There are three different tiers, and each tier gets you a different thing. If you'd like to go check those out, that is on our website, our Patreon website, which is linked on our regular website. Thank you to Gabe Anderlei for being our only patron still. We really appreciate the support, and we hope you're enjoying the perks that you get. We will continue to shout you out every single week as we will shout out every single one of our patrons. We will also shout out anybody who leaves us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Now, I believe currently we don't have any new reviews, and we will take any review 
because we love feedback, right? Feedback is the thing that keeps us driving. It keeps us going forward and it keeps us knowing what you all want as listeners. But if you hate us, we won't read it because I will cry and I don't have the mental stability to accept that. So if you leave a five-star review or if you'd like to be a patron, we will shut you out on the podcast. Now, if you can't support us financially or if you've already left a review and can't find another username to leave one by, another way and the biggest way you can support this podcast is by sharing this podcast with a friend. I share this podcast with all my friends. In fact, my new cohort is now learning about the Birdie Bunch podcast because I wore merch one day and they were all very intrigued by it. So thank you to all you who are listening to me talk about this venture that I'm doing. But also, we want to share the things that we talk about with as many people as possible. We love what we do here at the Birdie Bunch podcast and you are all the cogs in the machine that make this happen. Every single one of you is important to our continuation as a podcast so if you liked what you heard today if you liked the spooky season if you enjoyed all the content you heard on the spooky budge podcast share it with a friend we had fun here and we'd like everyone to join in the fun now with that all said are there any other things for my good friends and co-hosts before we officially blow out the torch that is the spooky bunch podcast 2021 the only other thing I was going to say is our next episode comes out on November 1st as the regular Birdie Bunch. So maybe we can talk about our Halloweens next week. Still spooky, but not totally spooky. Mm-hmm. We're not letting go of it that easily, folks. We, we need like a barrier. We need like a buffer. Mm-hmm. We need to transition <laughs> out of Halloween into the pew, pew, pew in your face of the holidays. I mean, we have a pretty spooky topic next week. I'm not a big fan of, but no spoilers. Mm. Yeah, no spoilers here. Well, if that's all we've got to say, then thank you for joining us for the Spooky Bunch podcast in this October. Happy Halloween, everybody, and we'll catch you on the other side of this holiday. We'll catch you next time. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Brittany, say bye. No, you don't have to, Brittany. Brittany, you don't have to. But, take it back, Brittany. Well, I take it back. Hi! Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.